0: Over the past several weeks, we've been taking a break from Philippians uh, chapter 2, where Paul urges the Philippians to move and act as one to spend some time reflecting on how we should live as the body of Christ. If you notice, my approach to this topic has been stated primarily in the indicative uh, rather than the imperative. In other words, rather than focus on what actions we should do in the body, I've tried to focus on who we are. Of course, this doesn't mean that I've ignored actions entirely. I think there's been a lot of discussion on what we should do in the body. But if you've noticed, I've tried to make sure that these recommendations have been been based first on who we are. Even last week, which was probably the message that has been most intensely focused on what we should do in the body of Christ. The title was still, Be Involved. I gave you three core things you should do in that message as a part of the body of Christ. But my goal really, more than the specifics of what you should do, was to encourage you to put on the mindset of involvement. I wanted you to see that you cannot approach life in the body passively. You must be an active member of the body of Christ. I mentioned this at the beginning of last week's message and then again at the end. I said we have to reverse the polarity in our approach to church. We have to stop asking, what do I get out of church? And instead ask, what can I put into it? That's what body life looks like. And that, even more than the specifics of what we should do in the body, was the main idea I wanted you to catch. We must be involved. So this has been my approach to focus more on who we are in Christ and what we are to be in Him, and then use that to guide and direct our approach to life in the body of Christ. And as we move through this series, I hope you can see why I've taken this approach. The Bible explains that the way that we live up to the calling we've received in Christ is through the renewing of the mind. In other words, we don't just change our behavior, we change our thinking. When you believed in Christ, the Spirit renewed your heart so that instead of rejecting God, you would love Him. He gave you that ability. But unfortunately, your mind didn't immediately follow suit. As Paul indicates in passages like Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, and Romans 12, 1 and 2, you still bring into your new life a fallen mind that's been corrupted by error and deception. And so not only must you struggle against your sinful flesh, which you still possess even after your new birth by the Spirit, but you must also uh, wage war against the lies that incite your flesh to rebel against God. The way that you overcome these fleshly desires is by informing your mind with the Scripture so that armed with the truth, the Spirit will put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.17. And this is why the Spirit uses God's Word to attack the lies and deception that Satan uses to incite our flesh and tempt us into sin. As we reorient ourselves to God's truth through the study of the Scripture, the Spirit then convicts us of that truth and propels us into right action. This is why I've focused primarily on who you are in Christ. The way that you'll grow in Christ is not by simply changing what you think, but how you think. You must renew your mind so that you start looking at the world in the same way that God looks at the world. You must think God's thoughts after Him. And as it relates to the body, this means thinking like a kingdom citizen. It means knowing who you are and then thinking through that grid. This is where I think body life really begins. It starts with understanding who you are, not just what you should do. It starts with understanding that you are now in Christ, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it starts with understanding that this world is not your home. There is in Christ an imperishable and undefiled inheritance already laid up for you in heaven. That's where your home is. It's with God in heaven, with Jesus in His kingdom. You are but a foreigner in this world. You are a sojourner who is residing here for only a short period of time before you go home to receive the inheritance that you already possess in Christ. This is why I think the church very often fails to live like the church. You have Christians who believe the gospel. They trust in Christ for salvation from their sins but then they fail to understand how that reality shapes their identity. They still see themselves in the same way that they did before they came to Christ, except now with fire insurance. Instead of realizing that in Christ, they're a new creation. Their goals, their priorities are still the same as they always were, all because they do not realize that in Christ, they've actually been made ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, that that's now their identity. So they don't see the church as a community of people that's been tasked with the proclamation of the gospel until the return of Christ, as a kind of missions team to, be belong, to belong to and be involved with, they think it's rather it's a building that you go to to hear sermons about how to be good, or how to live happier, more fulfilled lives. When you see yourself as a kingdom citizen, though, it completely transforms the way you look at the church. Suddenly, the sermons that you hear on Sunday, they're not just about how to be good so God won't get mad at you, or how to have a happier marriage, or even be a happier employee. No, their are messages designed to help you live in holiness so that you can be a faithful representative of the kingdom. Their are messages designed to help you know your God better and His gospel better, and not only so that you can worship and experience the riches of His grace, but also so that you can proclaim that message of salvation with greater clarity. And then the church, suddenly it's not a building that you go to, you know, just a function that you attend. It's a community you belong to. You actually love the people there because they belong to Christ. They're co-heirs of the kingdom of heaven. They're your eternal family, your eternal brothers and sisters. They're co-laborers for the gospel. And so you invest in them because you've all been assigned collectively to advance the kingdom of heaven together with the, through the proclamation of the gospel. This is why I've approached this series by focusing primarily on who you are in Christ. It's because I think it's when the Christian gets this right that they will begin to approach life in the body rightly. The key to living rightly in the body of Christ isn't found in just knowing what to do. It's in knowing who you are. It's in reorienting yourself to think differently about the church, to see your life in Christ in a whole new light and allow that to transform your understanding of what these relationships mean and what they're there for and what they do. So that's been my approach to talk about who you are so you can put the right mindset on towards the body. Up to this point, I've explained that you are new in Christ and that you are one in the church. So you're all ambassadors of Christ Jesus who've been tasked with the proclamation of the gospel. And this means that you should be in fellowship with Christ's church. And the reason for that is because as ambassadors, you've been called to represent Christ in holiness. And Christ's means of making you holy according to the scripture. In fact, His means of even advancing His kingdom is through the church. It is as the church speaks the truth to one another in love that it offers up a unified expression uh, of worship to God, one in which the gospel is proclaimed clearly and with great power. So you should be in fellowship with Christ's church. And not only this, but you should even look at your fellow Christians differently. Again, you are new in Christ, and this means that you are no longer to regard your fellow Christians according to what they are outside of Christ, but by rather By what they are in Christ. In Christ, they too are a new creation. And this means that you should esteem and care for them because they are co-heirs of Christ along with you. Again, they're your heavenly brothers and sisters. So those were the two first weeks in this series. I explained that you're new and you're one. Last week, I explained how those concepts should affect how you live with the body. And I said, be involved. Get active. Get active specifically by learning, speaking, and serving, but get active. Today I want to talk to you about the attitude that you should take to this involvement. So we've seen who you are and how it affects your approach to the body. We've seen that it should lead you to be involved, but what's the sort of mindset that you should have towards this involvement? How should you think about this involvement? And to this, I would say, be intense. Be intense. That's the title for today's message, be intense. To approach the body rightly, you must not only be involved, but you should be involved with great intensity. And in keeping with the pattern for this series, I want to start with the mind. I want to show you why you should be intense. So that this hopefully integrates into your thinking so that you are intense so that you are very passionate about your involvement in the church, so that it's something that you care about. And then after I've shown you why you should be intense, we'll discuss how to be intense. We'll talk about what the body looks like if you're pursuing it with intensity, what life in the body looks like. We'll talk about what zeal looks like in the body of Christ. Let's go ahead and start first with why you should be intense. And I'm going to Take a real straightforward approach here. I'm not going to try to wow you with a clever outline or something like that. I just want to give you two reasons why you should be passionate about life and the body. And just so you know up front, these are essentially summary points, meaning we've already laid the scriptural and theological foundation for these points over the past several messages, so I'm not going to be in the text this morning as much as I normally am. All I want to do today is connect the dots from our past three messages so you can see why you should be incredibly passionate about the growth of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, this will hopefully encourage you to follow through on what we've discussed over the past several weeks. So once again, I'd say there are at least two reasons why you should be passionate about life in the body of Christ. And the first reason I give is this, the love of Christ. Be intense about the body because you love Jesus. What do I mean by this? Well, this works on a couple of different levels. On the one hand, you should be zealous for the church because you love Christ. So like if you're thankful for Christ, if you're grateful for what he's done at the cross, if you delight in his gospel and you want to express thanks for him, or to him rather, then the way you do it, it's not some type of aesthetic, you know, religious performance or something like that. It's by loving his church. Probably the clearest example of this is found in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. If you would please turn there. And that's Matthew 25 verse 31. In this passage Jesus is explaining to his disciples how he will enter into judgment at his return. And this is what he says, Matthew 25:31 through 46. "When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne." Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if you're paying attention here, what Jesus is saying in this passage is pretty significant. He's saying that care for the church is a salvation issue. He says that the one who loves the church will go to heaven, and the one who does not will not. And this isn't because care for the church saves a person or something like that. There's no merit to be found in it. God won't accept anyone into heaven on the basis of their care for the church. A person is saved only by grace through faith in Christ. So how can Jesus state that only those who love the church will enter into heaven if it's not a work that earns salvation? You see the answer in verse 40. Jesus says to the one who cared for the church, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then in verse 45, he turns to the one who did not care for his church, and he says, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. The point is that care for the church is an expression of one's love for Christ, and to such a degree that one can conclude that if a person doesn't love the church, then they do not love Christ. That's how Jesus makes judgment on this basis. It's because one's faith will be expressed by love for the church, the body of Christ. James says a similar thing in James 2, 14 through 17. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The point there is that salvation is by grace through faith. But real faith, living faith, will manifest itself in works. And not just works generally, but specifically, if you notice, in love for the church. John says a a similar thing in 1 John 4, 16-21, when he writes, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has has seen, Cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, my point here isn't to scare you into love uh, by saying, well, if you don't love the church, then you're going to hell. In fact, one of the verses I just read, 1 John 4.18, seems to go against that idea by saying, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. In other words, if you're only loving other people because you fear God, you fear His wrath, then you're actually not saved because it means you're trying to earn your salvation with your love, through your good works. That's not the way that John talks about love. He describes the motive for true love like this, 1 John 4, 10 and 11. He says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The idea is that the Christian loves not to earn God's grace, but because they've already received it. They love as an expression of their gratitude to God. And that's the point that I'm trying to drive at too. If you're grateful for what God has done for you in Christ, if you love Jesus because of His great love for you, then the way that you'll express this is not through some cold religious observance. It's by loving His church. You see, there's nothing that you can really give to Jesus. Not to Jesus Himself to show your gratitude. At least not anything that He doesn't already have. He's God, right? And this means that there isn't anything you can give to Him to improve His existence. He is completely sufficient in and of Himself. And not only this, but anything you could give to Him is actually already His. He gave it to you. Us trying to give to Jesus is like a child going shopping, right? And then asking their mother or father for money so they can buy them a birthday present. It's definitely a kind gesture, and one that's cherished by the parent, right, for this sincere expression of dependency and love. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily improve the parent's existence, does it? The child only gave back to the parent what was, in a sense, already theirs. And this is how it is with Jesus as well. And for him, the best way for showing thanks is by loving his church. Understand, Jesus loves the church, right? He died for the church. I mean, if he was willing to suffer the wrath of God for them, it means that he has a pretty intense care for them, right? They matter to him. He desires their good. And so while you can't improve Jesus' existence by giving to him, guess what you can do? You can improve the existence of the church. You can show them mercy. You can show them help. You can help them in their sanctification, and that Jesus delights in to see His church cared for. This is what He loves. It's kind of like when a famous person passes away. Sometimes they'll ask for a donation to charity, right? Instead of instead of flowers, they'll say, "Will you donate to charity instead?" And why do they do that? It's because you know flowers are a kind gesture, but there's very little use in sending thousands upon thousands of flowers to a dead person. That's kind of how it is with Jesus. Now, Jesus isn't dead. He's very much alive. But you're not going to give him anything he doesn't already have. He appreciates your love. But he wants you to direct it on his people. That's the best way that you can serve him, by serving his church. So again, if you love Christ, if you rejoice in the salvation he purchased for you, if you delight in your new identity and wish to show thanks, then you should be zealous for the well-being of his church. If you love him intensely... And we should, right? He's What he's done for us is amazing. Well, if that gets you excited, then this is how that excitement is best expressed, by love for his church. That's one way that love for Christ motivates us to love the church. We love Christ intensely, and because we love him intensely, we have an intense love for his church. Now, in a sense, that's how it should happen, right? But that's not always how it does happen, does it? Like, I should love the church because I love Christ. And so since my love for Christ should be intense, I should have an intense love for the church. That sounds nice, but that's not always how it works, does it? Sometimes I have this intense love for Christ. And it's good to know that this is how I can express that love when those moments come. But there are a lot of times when I don't love Christ. You've been there too, haven't you? There are a lot of times you don't love Jesus. Or it's a very cold, very weak sort of love. What do you do then? Once again, you love the church. So on one hand, you love the church because you love Christ. But you also love the church when you want to love Christ. So how do you... So, you know, say you want to grow in your love for Christ... That too is accomplished in part by loving His church. You love the church in order to grow in your love for Christ, in order to experience His love. How does that work? I'd say it works in a couple of ways. First, when you pour yourself out in service to Christ's church, you experience firsthand a small measure of the price that Jesus paid in His love for you. So like as you try to live sacrificially, when you surrender your rights for your brothers and sisters, when you bear with them when they sin against you, when you give of your time and sweat for their well-being, sometimes with little thanks in return. Do you know what you're experiencing in that moment? You're experiencing just a small, just a tiny taste of what Jesus went through for you. Meaning that whenever you suffer loss for the sake of the church, you actually gain a deeper understanding of what Christ's love for you really means. And as you love in that way, as you follow in his footsteps and go, so this is what Jesus did for me? Do you know what's going to happen? You're going to grow in your love for Christ. You're going to go, wow, Jesus is amazing. You gain that as you suffer loss for His body. In fact, it's often as you pour yourself out and are spent for the sake of the church that you'll be even driven into a deeper relationship with Christ as you depend on Him more and more for the strength to love those who quite often, honestly, right, are not lovable. Paul speaks to this effect in Philippians 3 when he talks about forsaking everything. Not only to know the power of Christ's resurrection and attain the resurrection of the dead, but also to, quote, share his sufferings. That was a goal for Paul, to to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings. Paul knew there was blessing in the pain and blessing to the degree that while sitting in prison in chapter 4, he could write, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that's one way that service to the church grows our love for Christ. The other comes in Ephesians 3 and 4. If you recall, Paul says in Ephesians 3 that he prayed that the Ephesians might, quote, have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's praying that they would grow in the love of Christ, that they would know his love, And then he continues in the beginning of chapter 4 by saying, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He pleads with them. He says, be one. And as he expresses why they need to be one, he goes on to say that it's because the way that they'll grow into maturity is by their ability to speak the truth to one another in love. The body builds itself up in love. That's why Paul goes from saying, I want you to know the love of Christ, to saying, So be unified. The reason is because the church matures itself. Understanding the love of Christ comes as the body ministers to one another. And every part has a role, you'll recall. Every part needs the other to achieve this maturity. This has been one of the major themes of this series. Maturity happens in unity with the body of Christ. Worship happens when we're growing together with the body of Christ. So like if you want to grow in the knowledge of Christ, then you'll invest in your brothers and sisters because their maturity feeds back around to you when they in turn build you up. So the love of Christ, that's one reason why you should pursue life in the body of Christ and with great intensity. If you love Christ, then service to the body is the very best way to express it. But even if you don't, you should still be intense since your involvement in the body is how you'll grow in that love. You'll grow in your love for Christ as you get involved with the body. That should motivate you to pour yourself out in service to the body of Christ. That should lead you to pursue your brothers and sisters with great intensity Again, that's one reason to be intense with respect to your involvement in the body, the love of Christ. What's the second reason? I'd say it's this. Eternity. You should be intense about life in the body because your life here on earth is short. And the investment that you make in the body will reap eternal consequences. We've already seen one aspect of this principle played out in Matthew 25 where Jesus meets out eternal judgment based on a person's relationship with the body. But there's another aspect of this principle that's important as well, which goes back to the new identity that we've received in Christ. Back at the very beginning of this series, I said that you're all ambassadors of Christ in the world. And I said that what this means is that you must all be holy. You are in Christ, and by virtue of that relationship, you are now sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven. That in and of itself means you should be holy. And the order here is very important. You should not be holy so that you become a child of God. You are to be holy because you already are a child of God. In Christ, you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and this by itself means that you should live according to the laws and customs of that kingdom. You should be holy. And this is most especially true given that you are not only citizens, but ambassadors. The church is not here on the earth simply to pass time. Until death. No, the church is here to bear witness to Christ. What this means is that you must be holy because, as ambassadors, part of your job is to reflect the nature and character of your king. You must be sanctified while you proclaim Christ. In fact, I would argue that this is really the purpose of your sanctification right now. You're not simply to be holy for holiness sake. After all, if that's all that God desired from you, He could take you home right now and make that happen. You'll worship Him more perfectly in heaven than you ever will here on earth. So if that was the goal of your sanctification, to simply glorify God in worship, you'd be in heaven with Jesus. But the scriptures say you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. you understand God? I've been talking about this some in Sunday school lately, actually. God called Israel out to be a holy nation so that through their holiness, they might proclaim the character of God to the nations. As He told them in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, at the giving of the Mosaic Law, He says, If you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was the purpose of the Mosaic law. The law of Moses was never intended to be a means of eternal life. It was intended to be God's means of reaching the nations. Israel in this sense was God's missions program in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus responds to Israel's rejection of the kingdom by transferring that mission to his church. He doesn't Reject Israel. He doesn't abandon the covenant that God made with Abraham. Israel is still going to be an object of God's blessing. But in light of Israel's rejection of its Messiah, God has temporarily transferred their mission to the church. And now it is the church that will reach the nations. And they will do this as they proclaim the gospel while reflecting God's character in the way they live. Jesus has left his church in the world to proclaim his glory through its holy character. And he sanctifies this church progressively so that the church can bear constant witness to the fact that Jesus is alive and active. He isn't dead. He dwells in us through the power of the Spirit and he bears witness to this truth by constantly washing us and conforming us into his image with his word. I really hope you get this because this is so critical. How do you proclaim to the world that Jesus is risen from the dead. Is it with your words? Absolutely. No doubt. That's part of it. No one will be saved apart from the verbal proclamation of the gospel. But what is the sign that verifies this message? Is it miracles or healings? Is it scientific proofs? No. It's your sanctification. That is the evidence that Jesus is raised from the dead. And if you doubt what I'm saying, I'd encourage you to go back and read Romans 6 one more time. The fact that you will be united with Jesus in a resurrection like his is proven by the fact that you now presently walk in newness of life. Jesus' victory over sin is in part verified by the fact that you are now presently no longer enslaved to your sin. This means that your sanctification is critical to your mission, and not just in your mission, but in the church's mission. It's not optional. It's not just a good idea. No, the gospel will advance as we walk in newness of life. So what does this mean? It means that you must be in fellowship with Christ's church. And not just in fellowship with the church, but you must invest in the church. Again, why? Well, because there are going to be eternal consequences to our involvement in the church. There are eternal consequences to the church's holiness. Unfortunately, it would seem as if the church as a whole is increasingly lackadaisical in its faith. There's no real zeal for God or for his glory in her walls. Its people are often shallow with no depth of understanding of his word or of his righteousness. Even its understanding of the gospel is quite often very superficial. The people as a whole are immature, not just immature, but unconcerned about spiritual things. So we talk about the forgiveness of God and of the power of Christ to conquer sin. We go and proclaim that to the world. But when you look into our lives, what do you find? Sadly, so much of the time it's divisions, and strife, and jealousy, anger. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, greed. Basically all the things that you would find in the world. We say that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and made citizens of the kingdom of heaven and we live and talk as if Satan was still our master. And then we wonder, why are we losing influence? How are we going to get it back? I guess the problem, right, is we're not really culturally relevant. Maybe we, maybe, we, maybe we should adopt a better social media strategy. Maybe we need to go canvassing and find out what people want in church so we can give them that. Maybe. Or maybe the problem is that we're not holy. Maybe the problem is that we go and proclaim an empty tomb, but the stench of death coming off of us is so strong that no one believes us. We completely eviscerate the heart of our message with the way we live. And yes, I understand that God is sovereign over salvation and He can use broken vessels to accomplish His mission, right? Praise God for that. I'm not trying to take any of that away. All I'm saying is that if we're wondering why the world keeps spewing out the living water that we offer, maybe we should start by looking on the inside of the cup and not the outside. And that's like the exact opposite of what we see the church doing so much of the time. Let's face it, there's... Nothing innovative or exciting about be holy. This, this is standard, basic stuff. It's not going to sell a lot of books. But isn't this really where the Scripture says we should begin? So my point is you must be holy because there are eternal consequences to your holiness. The gospel will advance as we turn to God in humble submission and faith. And again, how will we do this? How will we grow in maturity? It's by being in fellowship with one another. It's by speaking the truth to one another in love. It's by serving one another and building one another up in love. Listen, it's by investing in one another. So why should you be passionate about being with the body, about serving them, about investing in them? Why should you pursue the spiritual growth of your brothers and sisters with great intensity? Again, it's because there are eternal consequences at stake in your collective holiness. Heaven and hell hang in the balance, ladies and gentlemen. And again, I'm not saying that to deny the sovereignty of God in salvation, but God has clearly indicated that He intends to save through means, and I'm saying that this is one of them. Just as God will not save anyone without a preacher, Romans 10, so also He means to work through a holy church. That should motivate you not just to be holy, but to be involved with the body of Christ, I hope. So these are the two reasons why you should pursue life in the body with intensity. Love for Christ and really love for your brother. What should you do then if if you are passionate about this? I mean, suppose you do want to be urgent about the growth and sanctification of the church. What should you do? And again, I've already talked about the actual activities to do last week. I said you learn, you speak, you serve. But now saying that we do that with an attitude of intensity, what does that look like, to be intense in those things? I'd offer two suggestions, and for time's sake, I'm obviously going to touch on each of these very briefly. First, this type of intensity is intentional. Intentional. It's intentional. Intensity for the body will be expressed with intentionality and actions. What I mean is that the one who is passionate about the body, who is zealous for his or her own growth in Christ, as well as the growth of their brothers and sisters, they're not just going to sit back and wait wait for people to come to them to start a relationship. They're not going to start serving only after someone has asked them. They're not going to speak only after they've been spoken to. No, they're active. There's an urgency in them that says this has to be done yesterday. And this urgency expresses itself in the fact that they're not passive with relation to the spiritual health of their fellow believers. They're active. They initiate things. I mean, consider the instructions that Jesus gives to the church in Matthew 18. You're all familiar with Matthew 18, aren't you? This is where Jesus talks about how all of his disciples matter. And so we shouldn't put any stumbling block in the path of one of his little ones. It's where he talks about the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep to pursue the one, which he then applies with the whole concept of church discipline, or as I like to call it, reconciliation, church reconciliation. Well, think about what Jesus is saying in those types of passages. The shepherd doesn't see a sheep wandering off and lean on his staff I say, boy, I hope that sheep finds its way home. Right? No, Jesus says, go after the sheep. It matters, right? So drop what you're doing, leave the 99, and go after that one because they matter. Jesus doesn't say, when your brother comes to you confessing a sin, tell him his fault. What would be the point in that, right? No, he says, if your brother is in sin, you go and tell him his fault. You pursue him. He doesn't want His disciples to only play defense. He wants them on offense too. They're to not only avoid placing stumbling blocks before their brothers and sisters, but they're to actually strive for their holiness actively. We are to stir one another up to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 24. That takes a level of planning. Last week I mentioned how on one occasion, when I was a new Christian, I had an older friend who heard some of my plans for the upcoming weekend. And realizing that I was exposing myself to temptation, he said to me, don't be surprised if I give you a call this Saturday to make sure everything is all right. And he did that. He called me on Saturday and said, hey, what's going on? Let's chat. You realize that didn't just happen. There were were several days that passed before the weekend came. A whole week, actually. And he didn't forget Do you think that's because he was just lying around on Saturday and then just randomly thought, you know, I wonder what Ryan's up to? No, like after our conversation, he made a point to tell himself, I'm going to call Ryan this weekend. And then he kept that in the fore of his mind until the weekend so that uh, on Saturday, when Saturday rolled around, he remembered to call. I've said that we need to get to know each other, that we need to spend time with each other. Listen, how's that going to happen if it's not happening already? It requires someone to say, you know, I'm going to invite so-and-so over for dinner this week and then doing it. It's not going to happen on its own. Quite often, listen, quite often, it's even going to require a change in priorities. And I think this leads us into the second way that intensity is demonstrated in the church. It's not only intentional, it's also sacrificial. It's intentional and it's sacrificial. Look, there are so many hours in a day, only so many hours, and only so many days in a life. And what this means is that your life is nothing more than a series of choices, and the product of your life, the contribution it makes, will by and large be determined by the kinds of choices you make. I think of this every year right around my birthday. Every year, birthday rolls around, and I say to myself, Well, I guess it's finally looking like I won't become a professional hockey player. I mean, I know I always had the skill, right? That was never the problem, really. But I chose to forsake that in order to go into pastoral ministry, and now I'm getting too old to play pro hockey. I can't go back and do that now. This is what life is. It's a series of choices. And with every hour of your life, you're determining how you will spend it you can 't do everything you want to do, sad to say, because you 're a finite being bound by a limited amount of time and energy and resources. So how do you want to invest it that 's one of the questions you have to ask yourself If you want to be able to edify the church through your words, understand that it 's not going to just happen. I know that 's what people think speak you know speak from the hip, just start rattling off opinions they don 't have to be true, they just have to sound. Good, but we've seen that's not how the body is edified. It's edified as we speak the truth in love. Listen, that requires study. So if I'm going to encourage my brother or sister in the scriptures, guess what? I have to choose to take time to read or to listen to sermons. And this not only requires that you make the conscious, intentional decision to learn, but quite often it will require you to choose to do that over doing some other thing you might enjoy. It's the same thing with building relationships. A friendship requires a serious investment of time. So if you want to build a friendship with some of your fellow believers, it's probably going to require that you choose to forego some other source of enjoyment. If you're going to expend yourself in service, it's going to leave you depleted of energy to do other things that you might like to do instead. If you're going to give financially to your brothers and sisters, I mean, unless you're filthy rich or something like that, then it's probably going to mean that you're going to have to choose to skip out on a few things that you could otherwise buy and enjoy for yourself. So what are you going to invest in? You know, every night when I finish my day, I have a few non-working hours to spend before I go to sleep and start my day over again. So every night I have a choice I can make. I can spend it with my wife and kids. I can spend it maybe calling my dad or my brother. I can spend it hanging out with friends. I could spend it working on the house, maybe read a book. I could watch TV or surf the internet, do some other fun thing. And that choice, night over night, over the course of my life, will determine to some degree the product of my life. And it's the same way with virtually every decision I make. What I choose to do for a career, what I choose to learn, whether I choose to save or spend, and what I choose to buy when I do spend, the effect of those things is cumulative. Point being, you will one day reap what you sow. Personally, I like to watch TV. I think probably a lot of us like to watch TV. But I don't watch as much TV today as I did 10 years ago. And this is why. It's not because watching TV is bad or something like that. I still watch it some. I still enjoy it. I just don't watch it as much as I did before. And the reason is because I got tired of looking back on my life and going, what's happened with the past 10 years? Where did it go? What have I done with it? And then realizing, oh, right, I spent a lot of it watching TV. I'm not content with that. I look at my boys, my my little girls, and I go, what do I want 20 years from now? Do I want a bunch of memories of television shows I once watched? Most of which I actually probably have forgotten, right? Or do I want spiritually mature children? And do I want to have a relationship with them? And I say, well, I want that. And I realize that starts now. It doesn't just happen. It starts with the choices about how I spend my time now. What I do when I get home from work at the end of the day? It's the same way with you in the church. Do you want to have a strong relationship with Christ? Do you want to have deep edifying relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters? Do you want to see the gospel advance and souls saved? It can happen. God has provided us with all the resources necessary for it to happen, but it's going to take time. And it's going to take energy. And it's going to take resources. It's going to require sacrifice. You just have to make the choice. You have to decide what you really want. You have to decide what you want to invest in. And as I say this, I hope you understand. I'm not trying to, to you know, warn you, you know, with a threat. I'm not trying to guilt trip you when I say this. This is meant as, as encouragement. Listen, you can have a deeper relationship with Christ. You can see people come to salvation. God has promised this in His Word, and His Word will not return void. You can take confidence in the fact that as you invest in spiritual things, you will reap a spiritual reward. So if this is what you want, you can have it. But it will require sacrifice. So what do you want to invest in? And as you weigh that choice, I'd like to read you a passage from Matthew 19. It comes at the conclusion of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Jesus has just told the rich young ruler that he'll have to sell everything to follow him, and the rich young ruler goes away sad, quote, for he had great possessions. Shortly after that, Peter says to Jesus, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? We've made our choice, Jesus, he says. We've invested in you. We've placed our bets on you. We've left behind our families. We've left behind our homes, our businesses. We've left everything to follow you. So what about us? What's the return on investment? What kind of harvest are we going to reap for what we've sown? And Jesus says this. He says, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now that's a reward that Jesus is promising to those 12 disciples specifically. But then he says this, And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Listen, any investor will tell you a hundredfold return makes for a pretty good investment. In other words, when you bet on Jesus, you can't lose. He will bless you. And he will bless you abundantly. So get involved, get invested in the body and be intense about it. Make the decision to learn, speak and serve in the body and then follow through. Be intentional, make a plan. And when choices have to be made, when priorities must be set, set the right ones. Yes, there is a cost that comes with pursuing life in the body. But it's far outstripped by the reward. So be intense. And be blessed. Let's pray.